for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. We're going to talk today about the resurrection, and uh, because we've got baptisms, and baptisms is a really good opportunity for me to talk to you about the resurrection, because the resurrection is like the most important thing that I could talk to you about at all. Um, And so we're going to talk about that this morning. But just in starting today, over the last few weeks, I've been thinking a lot about death. Hear me out on this one. Firstly, I'm the nominated plant waterer for my parents whilst they have escaped to Spain for a month. And uh, (laughs) you can see where this is going. Needless to say, they might be coming back to a few less plants than they've left with. (laughs) I, I did forget they... They gave me some instructions to, plant, to water the plants inside their house. I didn't do their back garden, and there was that kind of two-week window without any rain. So I was quite happily watering my own plants in my own garden at home, and I totally forgot about my mum's ones. Anyway, so I started, it got me thinking a little bit about it. And then secondly, and actually more sadly, recently, we've just experienced a few people just passing away. So Claire's grandma died a couple of weeks ago, and I've got the funeral this week for that. And uh, Pete Turnbull's nephew's wife, who actually I I grew up with in Norwich, she died after a very short battle with cancer. And so death has just been in my mind a lot recently. And I'm, I'm aware that for others in our church family as well, it's been something that some of us have faced recently. Death is painful. It's saddening. And if you are grieving for a friend or a loved one, you can feel utterly hopeless. The situation you feel like you're in when you start in a situation like that, you feel hopeless. It's also, though, however, an inescapable reality. We all face death at some stage. You and I are all going to meet that end. We are all going to face death. And I think death has a power over all of us, doesn't it? It has a power over us. Death is a powerful force in our lives. It controls how we think and behave. It brings fear, it brings sorrow, it brings regret with it. And so death has this power over us. Whether you'd like to think about it or not, I just want you to think about that for a second, because it's important, as I go on to talk about what I'm going to say today, that you consider that that this idea that death has a power over you. It does have a power in your life. But is death really the end? Because as Christians, we don't believe it is the end. Is death really the end? What if you could somehow cheat death? Like, you know, those Indiana Jones movies, they all seem to be about somebody finding the elixir of life to be able to cheat death. What if you could cheat death? What if you could somehow escape it or break its power over your life today so you don't live in that way, you don't feel the same way about it that you might feel sometimes? What if you could escape its power? I mean, I know that I would take that. I would take that in my own life. In reflecting on death and... In thinking to myself, well, actually, I know that there are people here today, I know I'm probably never going to speak to you again. You might only ever come to this church today. What's the one thing that I'd want to leave you with? Well, it's this, look. You see, whilst death is something that has a power over us, and we've sung about this this morning already, that the resurrection of Jesus has broken the power of death. That's what we believe as Christians. We believe that the resurrection has broken the power of death. Whether you're a Christian or a seeker into the spiritual, an agnostic or an atheist, my challenge to you, and it's for Christians as well as non-Christians in the room this morning, is before I've said anything else, is to think about this question. Did Jesus really come back to life again? Did he come back to life again? Are you convinced in your heart that he came back to life again? Did he come back to life again? Or, Or is he dead in the ground somewhere? Because if he did come back to life again, if that actually happened, and that's not just some sort of strange thing that Christians talk about, if Jesus actually came back to life again, 
Something about the very nature of death has been changed. Its power to hold everybody captive has been broken, because that's what the Bible says. Now, let me just go into this a little bit for you. Most of you will know the story. Most of you will know the story. Jesus, we believe as Christians, lived a perfect life. That means he didn't do anything wrong. That means that there was, there was, so in the Bible, the first five books are called the Pentateuch, and they're what are called the law books of the Bible. And so they were, they were written down by Moses, and they contain all the laws that the Hebrews followed, that the Israelites followed. And it says that Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. So Jesus, in, in that way, lived a perfect life, without fault. There was no blame in him at all. In fact, you see, we... You see, we can't obey every law, but Jesus had obeyed every law. And he was, in every sense, therefore, a perfect man. However, he made, started to make some claims. So he did this teaching and this ministry. So when he got to the age of 30, he started teaching. So before that, he was just a carpenter, but then he started teaching at the age of 30. And he goes around and he starts healing the sick, seeing people kind of set free from all sorts of weird things. But then he starts saying, the kingdom is at hand that I'm going to start a kingdom, my kingdom's coming. He starts making these claims, and to the people around him, to the Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities, they hated it, they were scared of him. He started saying things, he was, they were worried that he was going to start a rebellion against Rome. And so they did the only sensible thing they felt they could do, which was to kill him, so they crucified him. They, they, they brought some false charges against him, and they got rid of him. But then we find this amazing event takes place in the Bible that actually he's buried in the ground, but then in the tomb. And then what happens is, is that the Bible says that he came back to life again. And it doesn't matter who you are, you need to think about this Jesus. Because this Jesus has changed history. The person of Jesus has changed history. So much of modern history is affected by his life. Is he who he said he was? Did he really die and come back to life? Or is he just dead in the ground somewhere? You do need to make up your mind one way or another on that question. It doesn't matter who you are. You might walk out of this room today and make up your mind that he is dead somewhere or, that, or something else entirely, but you need to make up your mind one way or the other. You might have already had some thoughts on this. Maybe, maybe you don't even think that Jesus was a real historical figure. Maybe you think he wasn't real. Maybe you think he was just a, a work of fiction. Well, I would challenge you on that. I would challenge you on that. Let's just pretend that the Bible doesn't exist. So this big collection of writings that's written over a long period of time. Let's just pretend that doesn't exist. Well, I could take you to two historians that are used in history elsewhere. So Josephus, who gets used a lot. He was writing in the first century. And he talks about Jesus in his writings. He was a Jewish historian talking about Jesus. And you have Tacitus, who was a Roman, Roman historian and scholar. And he wrote about Jesus performing signs and wonders. So even if you didn't have the Bible... Two different sources both verify that Jesus existed. So if you've come in today and you think Jesus isn't even real, he didn't even exist, I challenge you on that one straight away because I could show you that he did exist without even needing the Bible. You might want to quote me on YouTube conspiracy theories. I mean, who's watched any of those? I love them. Or late night, you know, Channel 5 programs about the lost message of Jesus or the real Jesus or who was Jesus anyway. I've watched them all. Um, but the fact remains that Jesus was a real historical figure. There's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about it. Histo historians are clear that Jesus was a real figure. Well, any, any real historian, anyway. The next question is, if he was real, what do you do with what he taught about who he said he was? Well, you might take the route of the Buddhists and the secularists and just assume that Jesus was a good moral teacher, and a lot of people do that. 
I, I meet people a lot, and I talk about the fact that, I, you know, I, I work for a church now, and, you know, so last year I was just finishing off teaching, and I've talked to my, my, my colleagues about Jesus, and they just tell me, oh, I think he was just a good teacher. Because, that, you know, that's what Buddhists and secularists would assume, that Jesus was just a good teacher. Or you might go the route of Hinduism and Islam and actually think Jesus was just another prophet sent from God. So they don't just take Jesus as a good teacher. What they do is they actually say, well, let's try and amalgamate Jesus into our religion. He was just another prophet from God or he was an avatar of God is what the Hindus would would believe. Because of his historical importance, every religion, you see, has to try to come up with an answer for Jesus. They will have to do it at some point or another. But none are confident, nobody, not one of them, are confident in dealing with the biggest and most important question. Did Jesus come back to life? Did he come back to life? Because if Jesus came back to life, and the Bible's got the account right, if the disciples weren't smoking some funky tea or something like that in, in Israel at some point, and they really didn't just hallucinate seeing Jesus, they really did touch him, they really did see him, they really did feel him. If Jesus really was alive, we need to take everything he said seriously. We need to take everything he said seriously and consider the implications for our lives today. For example, you see, Jesus said things like, no one comes to the Father, that's God, so nobody comes to God except through me. I mean, that's quite a challenge to you and what you believe. He's saying, look, you can only get to God if you come through me. So if Jesus came back to life, maybe you need to take things like that that he said seriously. Because without the resurrection... Claims like that seem rather preposterous. They seem daft. You know, if I said nobody comes to God except through me, and then I didn't validate that in any way in my life, then you'd think that I was just talking nonsense. But if Jesus came back to life again, if he actually rose again from the dead, you need to think about that. What evidence is there for this claim then that Jesus came back to life, that he rose again from the dead? Well, we have uh, three things quickly. We have an empty tomb, we have a missing corpse, and we have people claiming that they have seen him alive. So we have the empty tomb, we have the disciples, they go to, to claim, they, they, they go and they see the tomb, the tombstone's rolled back and there's no body inside. So there's a missing corpse as well in that. And so some people try to claim that the disciples are hidden the body, that they had made it up. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then you have the, the biggest thing I think here, so you've got the two things here, the empty tomb, the missing corpse, and then the people who say that they haven't just hidden the body, but they saw him alive. And you have the 120 disciples who meet in the upper room at the start of Acts, have all claimed to see Jesus alive. But then in Corinthians, Paul writes that at one time at least 500 people saw him alive. So you can either add those two numbers together and come up with 620, or I could say to you, at least 500 people claim that over a period of 40 days, not like on one occasion, when they, yeah, like, as I said, they all did some magic mushrooms, over, it's not like that. Over a period of 40 days, that's almost seven weeks, they claim to have seen Jesus alive. That's a long time to be having a hallucination about something. So to make that jump and conclude that that event happened, what would be the supplementary evidence? Well, I think I'd want to work out whether or not those people who have claimed to see him alive are actually telling the truth and whether I could trust them. So I'd want to work out, could I trust these people with the claims that they're making? And the way that you can do that is read a book called Acts. And we're looking at that as a a church together at the moment. And this Acts account shows you what the disciples did after they witnessed this event. And we see that they go from being ordinary people, like fishermen, like tax collectors and ex-prostitutes. These are normal people. And they're not presented as being perfect in the accounts at all. In the Gospels, they're not presented as being perfect. And then in Acts, they're not presented as being perfect. In fact, we see them getting angry. We see them arguing over who Jesus' favourite is. 
And we see them lying to, to, to keep themselves out of trouble. They seem in every respect fallible, just like you and me. But the event of the resurrection seems to really change something in every single one of them. After they claim that they have seen Jesus alive, they are fervent in trying to tell as many people as possible about what they've seen. And the weird thing is about all of this, because you could say, well, they made it up in order to gain, to become famous. They don't become famous, they become infamous. They get hunted down, they get imprisoned, they get killed. They don't, they don't gain anything from it. In fact, they, they don't become rich, they become poor because of what they've seen. They're willing to die for it. You know, we have outside the Bible, we have sources that say that some of them were crucified. It says that, you know, there's one account that believes that Peter was crucified upside down. And he would not, he would not give up the idea that Jesus had come back to life, that he'd seen him alive. You have Stephen, who is stoned to death. Imagine that, what a horrible fate that is. He refused to say that he hadn't seen Jesus alive. He had seen him. He testified to it. Okay, you might say, okay, maybe it did happen then. Maybe it did happen. Maybe Jesus did rise again from the dead. But you might also say this, well, so what? <laughs> Big deal. What does it really mean for me today in 21st century Britain? It doesn't really impact my life. Big deal. This guy came back to life again. Maybe he, maybe he then died later on. Uh, big deal, you might say. What's the relevance? Well, look, I would say that the relevance is that actually it has an impact for your life today. It has an impact for your life both right now and in the future as well. And that if you took on board what I'm saying today, if you actually were to be convinced that Jesus came and rose again from the dead and that is now alive and reigning in heaven, that may well change how you feel about a lot of things. Now, um, I, I want to just show you some things about what Peter said. So Peter was one of the disciples and he um, gave this talk at the start of Acts. And I think it would be really helpful for me because I think I can show you some relevance to this claim that Jesus is alive. I can, make, I can help hopefully show you how this is relevant to you through something that Peter said. But before I get there, if I can just kind of give you a little bit of context, because I'm going to talk, I'm going to give you half of his talk today. Okay, so he, he got up and he, he preached a message to people. But if I can give you some context to how he got to where he was getting to. So what we have is at the start of Acts, we have the disciples, they meet in this upper room. As I said, there's 120 of them. They've claimed to see Jesus, and Jesus has come to them, and he said to them, before he went up to heaven, because they, they say they saw him ascend into heaven as well, but before he ascended to heaven, he said to them, wait in Jerusalem, wait for the Holy Spirit to fall on you. So they do this thing, they, they wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, they would have known who the Holy Spirit was, because in the Old Testament, you have the Holy Spirit um, falling in, giving, equipping people for different things. So Samson, you know the story of Samson and, and Delilah, and he has his long hair, and he's equipped with power, and he's really strong. And then you have other people in the Old Testament, and they're given different abilities at different times. But Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit, that is the presence of God, so God himself is going to come and fall on you. And he promised them that the Holy Spirit would meet them. And all of a sudden, so they're meeting in this room, and the atmosphere changes. Like the, 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 there's a sound like a strong wind. I mean, we, I heard that in my loft room this morning. A sound like a strong wind. And the Bible describes the moment as looking like fire resting on the disciples. Now, some people would believe that it was actual fire resting on them. I like to think that maybe it just is, is, is indicative of the change that started to occur in what was happening. But the outcome is really clear from what's happening. So this really weird moment takes place with these disciples. The room changes. The, the, the wind is, is, is blowing. The, the, there's, there's like this weird sort of sense of the presence of God resting on them. And then all of a sudden, they start speaking different people's languages. And so they're in this room, and they're speaking lots and lots of different languages. And it's like they've learned them instantly. 
So much so that everybody around them, in the, the houses around and the streets around, hear what's going on, and they think that they don't know what on earth's going on. So some of them come to the conclusion that actually they're, they're drunk, that they've had like an all-night party, and they're basically completely drunk off their face. And therefore, actually, that's why they're speaking these weird languages. So Peter, the, the disciple of Jesus, feeling like he needs to give some sort of justification as to what's happening, he gets up and he stands before and he preaches, a, he preaches a message. And I really feel that actually that message is important for you to understand why the resurrection is relevant to you. And so I'm going to spend the last few minutes I've got just going through that with you. And first of all, he gets up and he says, look, they're not drunk, it's nine o'clock in the morning. So he's kind of, he makes that claim straight away. But then he goes on to say this. He talks about the fact that, that actually there was always a promise that one day God would come and meet his people, God would come and meet people and fill them with his presence. He says that was a promise. You were promised that a long time ago. And then he goes on to say this, and he says our verses that I'm going to read to you now. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you through miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So first of all, he says... You, people watching on right now what's going on, you saw this Jesus because he was in Jerusalem just a few weeks ago. You saw him do the things that he said he would do. He performed miracles and signs and wonders. You saw it. And then he says this, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. I mean, this is a really interesting uh, sentence. So it talks about the fact that actually the, re- the, 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 the death of Jesus was the plan of God's for all of creation, that this moment was coming. That God knew that Jesus had to die on a cross to carry the sin of the world. God knew that. And so God knew it. But at the same time, Peter is saying, you're culpable for it. You did it. It was your fault that this happened. You, the, some of the blame to this lays at your feet. You made certain decisions and certain choices. And then he goes on to say this, but God raised him up from the dead. He freed him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then what he does is he uses David. David is an Old Testament king, and he quotes David, so this King David, and he says this. So David wrote this psalm, and and Peter uses this psalm and relates it back to Jesus. David wrote this, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the part of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And then Peter concludes after giving that quote. Fellow Israelites, I can, confidently, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David was died, died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day, pointing to the tomb in Jerusalem. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So Peter gives a very detailed justification, first of all, for Jesus' resurrection, and second of all, for what's happening in Jerusalem with these disciples, that they're speaking these weird languages, and that actually it seems like the presence of God's turned up. Peter clearly had thought that the resurrection had changed everything. But what's it changed? Well, look, 
he, first of all, he says this, that, that the resurrection means that you and I can have hope. The resurrection means you and I can have hope. First off, Peter says that because of the resurrection, we can have hope that we didn't have before. And he quotes David who writes this, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will rest in hope. My body will rest in hope. If you know Jesus has risen from the dead, if you follow him, you too, like David, can rest in hope. You can be hopeful that death is not the end. Because that's what, that's what um, Peter's getting at here. You can be hopeful that death is not the end, that your soul will carry on. You can be hopeful that if Jesus has risen, one day you too will rise again. The promise that you can have as a Christian is that one day those who know Jesus as their saviour will live forever with him, inherit new eternal bodies. And I know for some of us whose bodies are failing and we're suffering with sin and sickness and disease that, that has crept into our bodies... Actually, this promise that one day we're going to get a new body is an amazing promise to us. And it enables us to have hope in life. You know, I know that, you know, if, 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 I, was, if I was to, to really fall ill with something, I would have a hope. I would have a hope that one day that God would raise me to new life. It means that death isn't the end. And on the other side of, of this mortality, there is immortality. It's life forever. And that sounds fantastical, doesn't it? You know, you might think, what a nonsense. Oh, you, oh, you believe that actually when you die, it's not the end kind of thing. Well, it talks about in the Bible that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. And, and why is it saying that? Well, it's saying that if he's the firstborn, then we too will also rise. It's promising something. And if Jesus' resurrection happened, then I can start to think that actually maybe it does happen. Maybe it will happen to me as well, because if Jesus' resurrection is proof that you can rise from the dead. I can believe it for myself as well, that one day I will be raised to new life. What else does Peter say then? What else does he say about the resurrection? Well, he says the resurrection means that you can trust God as well. Verses 30 and 31 of our, um, of, of our reading there. Again, he reflects on King David's experience. And Peter says that God made him an oath that one day David's descendants would reign on his throne. That's quite a promise. But we see from Peter's argument that Jesus who died and rose again has now been given the place of authority that was promised to David. What does that mean for you and I? Well, it means that you can trust God. So you see here that God made a promise, God made a promise, and it was fulfilled. Okay? So if God makes a promise and it's fulfilled, then you can trust God with your life too. You can trust him. If God says he's defeated death, he has defeated it. If God says he's taken our sin, he's taken it. If God says that one day we will live and reign with him, we can trust him. We can trust him. What he says he will do, he will do. The resurrection also means this. It means that you can experience God's presence. You can experience the presence of God. One of the big links between Peter's speech and the resurrection is what had, what had just occurred with these uh, Israelites in Jerusalem these disciples, they'd received the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God. And as Christians, we can know the presence of God in our daily lives. Peter says that without the resurrection and Christ's ascension, Jesus would not have sent the Spirit. In fact, actually, Jesus himself says that. So John 16, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So in order for the Holy Spirit to come and invade the lives of the disciples and invade our lives as Christians, it was necessary that Jesus ascended to heaven. It was necessary that Jesus now sits on the throne in heaven. And as a Christian, you can receive the Holy Spirit. 
What does that mean? That means you can have the fullness of God and his presence living and working in you. Peter reflects on this again using words from David in Psalm 16. He quotes David as saying, you fill me with joy in your presence. You fill me with joy in your presence. You see, being filled with the Spirit brings us joy. Being filled with the presence of God brings us gladness. He he again quotes there from, from David. And that his presence in our lives causes our flesh to live in hope. So actually, when we become Christians and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can know God's presence living inside of us, giving us hope, giving us joy, giving us gladness. Lastly, The resurrection means this, and I've I've said it a few times already, and we've sung about it this morning. The resurrection means that Jesus is now on the throne in heaven. Jesus is on the throne in heaven. That's significant. We believe as Christians that we have a king, not not just like an earthly king or the queen. You know, we have a king in heaven, and that's who we worship. We live our lives because we believe that Jesus is on the throne in heaven. And so everything in our lives it revolves around the idea that actually Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is living. Jesus is ruling. Jesus is reigning. And when we come to Jesus, we know that we go to the king. And if you go to the king, the king has the power to change situations. The king has the power to change your life. You know, when you go to a king, if you had an opportunity to meet with a queen, she could have the opportunity and the power to change your life when you met her. She could do something for you that might change your destiny. When you come to Jesus, you come to the King of Kings. You come to the King above all kings. And he has the power to change you, to bring you hope, joy, love, peace. He has the power to give you a a future that is um, significantly different from maybe the life that you're living at the moment. He has the power to do that. Jesus is alive today. And you might not believe that still. But I believe it, and I would testify to the fact that my life has changed from that. And the people getting baptised this morning, they're getting baptised because they believe Jesus is alive. They're getting baptised because they are utterly convinced, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that Jesus has risen from the dead, and they want to follow him with their whole life. And so that's what they're doing this morning. They are convinced that Jesus is risen. Jesus has defeated their sin. Jesus has defeated death, and that they can know him more. And so that's why they're doing what they're doing. And just as I finish, the symbolism of baptism is this. As they go into the water, they go down into the water. It's like they're going down into the grave. They're remembering when Jesus went down into death and suffered and died for our sins. They're remembering that Jesus died for the things that they've done wrong. And then as they get raised up, they're remembering what happened with Jesus. That Jesus is risen to life. And they're claiming something for themselves. They're saying this, I'm going to raise to new life in Jesus, both now and in eternity. See, the symbolism of baptism is everything I've just spoken to you about today. And as we pray for them afterwards, they'll be prayed that the Holy Spirit will meet with them, that God's presence will come and fill them. Because that's what we believe as Christians. Okay? Um, now, I'm going to just leave you with this. If you um, maybe have thought about what I've said today and you're interested in finding out about more, can I encourage you to either do the Alpha course or could you talk to Pete? Pete, give us a wave. Pete runs the Alpha course. And um, Pete would love to talk to you afterwards. Maybe you've just got some questions. Maybe you've got more questions. That's a good thing. Questions are good. Okay, go to Pete and talk to them about that. Well, maybe you're actually at a point where you'd like to actually say, I want Jesus to be my king too. Um, and so I'd encourage you to go to him afterwards. So, Lord Jesus, I, I believe you're on the throne in heaven. I believe that you've defeated death. I believe that your resurrection means that we can have hope. 
I believe that your resurrection means that we can know joy, that we can know gladness. I believe that your resurrection has broken the power of death, that we don't need to live in sorrow and fear and regret because, Lord Jesus, we know that one day you will raise us up. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I believe, Lord, that anybody who comes to you will know new life in a way that they would never, ever experience in any other way. That Jesus, you say, if anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink. Lord, and I know that actually when I've done that, Lord Jesus, you've changed my life. And so I pray for my friends here today that you would help them maybe walk just slightly closer to that decision today to maybe make you their King and their Lords as well. Amen.